you find yourself needing to learn more about D&D. What do you do? I cast Pod! Welcome to iCast Pod, a D&D podcast about creating characters, taking chances, rolling dice, and having fun. I'm Mike, your DM and guide to all things Dungeon-esque and Dragony. In this episode, we're talking about Icewind Dale, Half-Orcs, Rogues, Folk Heroes, Illithids, and Intellect Devourers. Heard any good rumours lately? There's a new sourcebook coming. Icewind Dale, the Rime of the Frostmaiden, ties in with not only R.A. Salvatore's Icewind Dale trilogy of novels, the first he wrote containing the drow ranger Drizdoerden, but it also apparently has some tie-in to the upcoming Dark Alliance game, and presumably the previous Icewind Dale CRPG. Touted as a horror adventure module with 320 pages and over 50 stat blocks contained within, the most in any 5e module so far, several of which will be for the Frostmaiden Auril herself, as she can appear in various forms. Journey to the frozen wastes of the far north to the communities of ten towns and help defeat an ancient evil. Brave blizzards, fish for knucklehead trout, or participate in an as-yet-unnamed Goliath sport. The release date is September the 15th and it should retail for $49.99. Want more Icewind Dale? IDW Publishing is going to be releasing At the Spine of the World on the 21st of October. The comic is set in Icewind Dale and features Sarvin, a dragonborn ranger facing off against feral beasts, blizzards and a strange madness that has gripped the residents of Ten Towns. Still not enough? Well, prepare for your adventure in Icewind Dale with the Rime of the Frostmaiden Dice and Miscellany set, which features 11 frosty-looking dice, a fold-out map of Icewind Dale and Ten Towns, a felt-lined box that doubles as two dice trays, and 20 double-sided cards with descriptions and illustrations of creatures and characters from the area. The set is due to release on the 15th of September for around $30. What, more? What makes you think... Okay, fine. WizKids is releasing a tie-in mini-set, also in September. Packs contain chilling new monsters like the Tomb Tapper and Abominable Yeti, denizens of ten towns like the Reghead Nomads, and even include the many forms of the Frostmaiden herself for you to encounter, if you dare. There are 45 co- figures to collect, and packs cost $16.99. Got money to burn? Consider treating yourself to the Beadle and Grimm's Rime of the Frostmaiden Platinum Edition. It comes with a custom DM screen, full battle maps, full scale battle maps, sorry, exclusive encounter cards, in world handouts, high quality wearables, and original artwork. With a limited run of a thousand copies at $499, it's a steal and the perfect gift for your favourite D&D podcaster. <coughs> what? Nothing. I didn't say anything. Off to the races. Half-orc. In D&D, alliances between orcs and humans are not unheard of. Sometimes they unite to band together against some force that threatens both of them. Sometimes an uneasy truce descends over the two factions after many years of brutal and bloody war. Whatever the reason, intermarriage is sometimes the seal that bonds the two tribes together. From these unions, half-orcs are born. 
The one-eyed god Grumsh created the orcs and for the most part reigned supreme over them. Even orcs that deny the god his due worship for whatever reason can still feel the fingers of his influence snaking their way into their lives, and the lives of half-orcs are not exempt. It may be that they hear whispers from the god in their slumber, or they feel the thrill of Grumsh's elation surge through them as they enter into the fray of the melee, washing over them like a tide. Some take the feeling as a sign and come back to Grumsh's fold, while others interpret it as an ill omen and shy away from doing Grumsh's will. Orcs are not inherently evil, but there is an aspect of it within their hearts. Some follow to see where it leads, and others rebel by trying to do good in the world. Aside from Grumsh's influence, half-orcs feel emotions more intensely than their human counterparts. Rage feels like a burning sensation all over their skin. Insults sting like a freshly slapped face, and melancholia drains them of energy. Half-orcs feel everything this way, so delight in partaking in activities that spread pleasure through their bodies, like laughing raucously, drinking, wrestling and dancing feverishly to the pulsing throb of drums that reverberate in their guts. Half-orcs tend to be slaves to their tempers and can sometimes descend into sullen episodes, but most often they like to act instead of spending long hours in contemplation. This hot-headed nature often leads to fighting either with other tribes, races, or even within their own groups. Those who can master their emotions stand the best chance of becoming leaders, chiefs, or even ambassadors between races or clans, utilising their human heritage to their advantage. Some half-orcs prefer the company of humans living in human societies, who are more likely to accept them than other racial societies apart from orcs themselves, of course. Generally, half-orcs will be given names appropriate to the society they are born into, but some will take on new names in later life, sometimes to better fit in with new surroundings, or occasionally half-orcs raised in human societies will take on an orc name pronounced in a guttural way to emblazon their heritage for all to hear, or simply because they find that humans find such names intimidating. To ingratiate themselves, some half-orcs will demonstrate a patient and reserved nature above and beyond even the humans that they mingle with, while others withdraw, trying not to draw attention to themselves. Still others play upon their toughness and try to be so unapproachable that others leave them alone. Orcs value scars. Battle scars are marks of pride to be displaced, and scarification as beautification and adornment is commonplace. Scarring is also used to mark slaves and outcasts. Exiled orcs and half-orcs are branded to show their persona non grata status and declare it wherever they go. A half-orc will almost always have scars if it has been around orcs enough. Those that involve tales of domination on the battlefield may be displayed proudly, even within human societies, whereas those that tell of crushing defeats or time spent as a slave or exile will probably be covered or otherwise hidden. Half-orcs tend to have greyish skin tones, sloping foreheads and larger builds than humans, standing at around 5 to 7 feet tall and weighing 180 to 250 pounds. Half-orcs make good adventurers. Strong and hardy, with a savage, furious edge to their combat, they are ideally suited for a life of battles and skirmishes. The obvious choices for a half-orc character are fighter or barbarian, with rogue down at the bottom of the list, but they could also make for great paladins with their inherent sense of honour and martial skills. Stat block. Half-orcs benefit from a plus two to strength and a plus one to constitution. 
half-orcs reach adulthood at around 14 years, ageing notably faster than humans and rarely living past 75. They inherit a chaotic nature from their orc parent and are not naturally predisposed towards good. Half-orcs that live with orcs may tend towards evil. Their size is medium, their speed is 30 feet, they have dark vision to 60 feet and proficiency in intimidation. They have relentless endurance. When they are reduced to 0 HP and are not killed, they drop instead to 1 HP. This can be used once between long rests. They benefit from savage attacks. When you crit with a melee weapon, you can roll one of the weapon's damage dice twice and add the result to your damage roll. Languages are common and orc. Orc has no written form, but borrows the dwarvish script. You so classy. Rogues. One of my personal favourite classes to play, rogues are all about stealth, hit-and-run tactics and burst damage that focuses down single targets with surprising speed and agility, and escaping back into the shadows. Masters of turning the tide of battle to their advantage, rogues seek out vulnerabilities in their opponent's armour and tactics to maximise the effectiveness of their strikes. They are versatile and heavily skilled, acting with keen resourcefulness and a measured approach. Rogues can specialise their skill set, with some focusing on stealth or deception, or physical skills like climbing, discovering and disarming traps, opening locks, or use of poisons. Most cities will have at least a handful of rogues. Many of them will earn an illicit living as burglars and thieves, cut purses, assassins and confidence tricksters, but others will earn a staple from a legitimate occupation such as a locksmith, investigator or exterminator. Remembering that the sewers in Toril crawl with worse things than rats and roaches, exterminators in D&D have a harder time of it than those of our world. Although most rogues work as independents, many will hire an assistant or lackey for some jobs and or heists, and there are thieves' guilds in most major metropolitan areas which rogues will usually be affiliated with in order to gain information, seek shelter if on the run from the local guards, or just mingle with their own kind. Some rogues eschew the thieves' guild and instead devote themselves to a particular crime family, performing tasks as diverse as messenger to hitman. When serving as adventurers, Rogues occupy a decidedly grey space, morally speaking, and their escapades can land them on the side of righteousness as easily as on the wrong side of the law. There will always be those who take to adventuring in order to loot or otherwise relieve owners of their riches. Those who take to adventuring in order to disappear from the vicinity of the eyes of their victims, foes and would-be captors, and those who just fancy the glamour and danger of the lifestyle. Known for engaging in combat on their terms only, Rogues dart from the depths of shadows to appear suddenly behind their prey, sliding an edge between the ribs, only to vanish again as incorporeal as smoke. A rogue's main weapon is not their starkly beautiful daggers, nor the caltrops and traps they wield, but their cunning. Their knack of examining a situation and turning it to their own advantage. Rogues look to maximise damage with each strike preferring one precise slice to a flurry of wild blows that may only serve to wear down an opponent's energy reserves. Add to this the rogue's uncanny ability to avoid damage, and some even bolster those innate abilities with magic. When creating a rogue, dexterity should be your primary stat, followed by either intelligence or charisma. Intelligence is for builds that want to take up the arcane trickster archetype, 
or if you wish to excel at investigation. Charisma is for builds that want to focus on deception and social interaction. For a quick build, choose these stats and the charlatan background. From first level you get access to expertise, which allows you to double your proficiency bonus when you make ability checks, with your choice of two skills or else one skill and thieves tools. You also get Sneak Attack, one of the rogue's main mechanics, where you can add 1d6 extra damage on attacks made with a finesse or ranged weapon if you have advantage on the attack roll or if there is another enemy of the target within 5 feet of it, and that enemy isn't incapacitated and you don't have disadvantage on the roll. The extra damage scales with levels too, making for a pretty handy burst of extra hurt you can deal out. You can also understand Thieves Cant, a code used between thieves to mark loot, safe houses, easy prey, dangerous areas, or whether a particular thieves guild operates in the area. Thieves Cant is a mixture of secret signs and symbols, code and dialect that can be hidden in normal conversations, but the conversation will take four times longer than just saying your message plainly. From second level you get Cunning Action, which allows you to dash, disengage or hide as a bonus action on each turn in combat. From third level you choose a roguish archetype. The player's handbook lists Thief, Arcane Trickster and Assassin. The Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide adds Mastermind and Swashbuckler. Xanatha's Guide to Everything adds Inquisitive and Scout, as well as additional details for Mastermind and Swashbuckler. Thief has your skills honed for larceny. You get the ability to use Thieves' Tools as a bonus action to disarm a trap or open a lock, a faster climbing ability, advantage on stealth checks provided you move up to a max of half your speed and more at later levels. Arcane Trickster bolster their arsenal of tricks with magic of illusion and enchantment. They gain the cantrip Mage Hand plus two more of choice from the wizard list, as well as three first level wizard spells. Later levels bring abilities to distract, ambush and even learn new spells from other spellcasters. Assassin trains you to be a killer via poisons, weaponry and stealth. You get advantage against any creature in combat that haven't taken a turn yet, the ability to create false identities, mimic others' speech and mannerisms and damage doubling capabilities. Mastermind is geared toward those who would be spies or courtiers and the like. You can aid others in combat, gain insight into enemies' capabilities, misdirect strikes against you, and more. Swashbuckler trains the user in the art of the blade. Rather than hacking away at enemies, your death dealing almost appears as a dance or performance. You can avoid attacks of opportunity, gain bonuses to initiative, and can re-roll missed attacks, gaining advantage at the same time. Inquisitive means no secret is safe from your prying eyes and you can read others to glean their true intent and root out lies. You study opponents' tactics to gain advantage during combat and exploit their weaknesses. Scout is adept at stealth and survival, particularly in the wilderness. You can move up to half your speed as a reaction without provoking an attack of opportunity, gain proficiency in the nature and survival skills, and have advantage on initiative rolls and extra attacks. Stat block. Your hit points at first level for a rogue are 8 plus your constitution modifier. Hit points generally are 1d8 or 5 plus your constitution modifier per level. Your hit dice is 1d8 per level. Proficiencies are armour, light armour. Weapons, simple weapons, hand crossbows, long swords, rapiers and short swords. Tools are thieves tools. Saving throws are dexterity and intelligence. 
Skills you choose four from acrobatics, athletics, deception, insight, intimidation, investigation, perception, performance, persuasion, sleight of hand, and stealth. Your equipment is a rapier or a short sword, a short bow and a quiver of 20 arrows or a short sword, a burglar's pack, a dungeoneer's pack, or an explorer's pack, leather armor, two daggers, and thieves' tools. Background check. Folk hero. A product of humble beginnings, destiny had more in store for you. People from your home think of you as their champion already, and greater things, more glorious battles, hard-won victories, and the vanquishing of more powerful foes lies in wait in your future. You stand between the forces of evil and the simple common folk you come from. From your simple past life as something like a farmer, miner, servant or woodcutter, you were propelled into the ranks of local hero by some defining event. Perhaps you stood fast against the tyranny of a local lord, or fought off a wandering monster that threatened your quiet hamlet. Or perhaps you spearheaded a ragged militia against a more powerful enemy and won the day. The player's handbook has several suggestions in a table to either choose from or roll for. Rustic hospitality. You fit in with the common folk having come from them originally. You can always find a place to rest, hide out or recuperate among commoners, unless you yourself have proved to be a danger to them. They will shield you from the law or other forces that may be seeking you, but will not risk their lives for yours. You're the hero after all, not them. Many folk heroes carry the experience of their common life with them, looking on their humble origins as a source of virtue rather than a shortcoming. Being proud of where you came from is integral to the folk hero way of life and your home communities are still very important to you, although you will now find yourself called away to fight for other communities and causes. Stat block. Your skill proficiencies are animal handling and survival. Your tool proficiencies are land vehicles and one type of artisan's tools. Your equipment is your choice of a set of artisan's tools, a shovel, an iron pot, a set of common clothes, and ten gold pieces in a pouch. Monster Menagerie Intellect Devourer Imagine a human brain. Now imagine four legs sticking out of it and make it the size of a roughly a mini-fridge or a washing machine on its side. Freaked out yet? Now imagine that it wants to kill you. Worse still, it wants to feed on your intelligence. And in this campaign, you finally played that barbarian you'd had your eye on for a while, and Int was basically your dump stat, and you don't have a lot to spare to begin with. Intellect devourers are the gross pets of everyone's favourite evil humanoid cephalopods. The Illithids, a.k.a. Mind Flayers. More on those later. Intellect Devourers are created by the Illithids who take the brain of a thrall and perform a vile ritual on it. As the legs sprout forth from the gelatinous flesh, they become an evil but intelligent aberration. They are used as roaming guard dogs by their Illithid masters, roaming the corridors of the Underdark, capturing prey, then consuming the mind of the creature before animating the corpse like a puppet, which it uses to lure more mindless animals and hapless adventurers into the Illithid's domain to be enthralled and enslaved, or to be simply consumed. Stat block. Intellect devourers are classed as a tiny aberration. Their AC is 12. Hit points are 21 or 64 plus 6. Their speed is 40 feet. 
The skills, they have plus two to perception and plus four to stealth. Ugly as they are, you might never see them coming. They're resistant to bludgeoning, piercing and slashing damage from non-magical attacks. They can't be blinded. They have blind sight to 60 feet but are blind beyond that radius. They have a passive perception of 12. Languages they can understand deep speech and can communicate telepathically within 60 feet. They have a challenge rating of 2 and award 450 XP each. Actions. They have a multi-attack. The intellect devourer makes one attack with its claws and uses devour intellect. The claws are a melee attack with 5 foot reach, 1 target, plus 4 to hit. A hit equals 7 or 2d4 plus 2 slashing damage. Devour Intellect targets one creature within 10 feet that has a brain. The target rolls a DC 12 intelligence save, with a fail giving 11 or 2d10 psychic damage, and the target must roll 3d6. If that result is larger than their intelligence, their intelligence drops to zero and the creature is stunned until it regains at least one point of intelligence. Body Thief The Intellect Devourer enters into an intelligence contest with an incapacitated humanoid within five feet that isn't protected by the spell Protection from Evil and Good. If the Intellect Devourer wins the contest, it magically devours the creature's mind, teleports into the vacant skull and takes control of the lifeless body. While in this state, they are protected against attacks and effects that originate outside the body. It retains its intelligence, wisdom and charisma scores as well as telepathy, traits and knowledge of deep speech. All other stats are inherited from the host body. The intellect devourer knows everything the previous occupier knew, including spells. If the host body dies, the intellect devourer must leave and can also be forced out by protection from evil and good or by use of a wish or can leave by spending five feet of its movement, which it can then teleport into an unoccupied square within five feet of the body, which dies unless the brain is restored within one round. Law Academy Illithids Also known as mind flayers, illithids are humanoids whose heads resemble squids, octopodes or cuttlefish. They are evil aberrations with a sadistic streak and psionic powers. Usually denizens of the Underdark, listen to the last episode for more on the Underdark, they are feared by most goodly races and respected by the Drow, Dwergar and even Beholders. And for more info on Beholders, see episode 4. Illithids would like nothing more than complete domination over all creatures via their impressive and terrible psionic powers. They are actually warm-blooded amphibians with webbed feet that sport two toes, hands with three long reddish fingers and a thumb, and four tentacles around a circular lamprey-like mouth lined with small but sharp teeth. Illithid eyes are extremely sensitive to bright light, which explains why they call the Underdark home. They traverse the planes by means of plane shifting, which allows them to teleport to other planes of existence, which they use in collecting and controlling populations of creatures to feed off and rule over tyrannically. They are extremely self-serving but view themselves as masterminds. They are aggressive and elitist and attempt to dominate any creature that is not an illithid or already one of their zombie-like slaves. Despite their fearsome appearance and power, they were hunted by the Githyanki, making them paranoid and fearful and their first consideration when creating or moving a colony was to remain concealed from outsiders to better their chances of survival. 
Generally, illithids show a calm and stoic demeanour, but they can be spurred to bouts of furious anger, although no one is sure if that is just for display or if the mind flayers genuinely feel such emotions. Generally, they are thought of as experiencing only negative emotions and only found contentment while sadistically devouring the brain of another creature. Armed with spells and abilities that allow them to take control over prey, as well as a powerful mind blast that can affect any creature within an 18-foot cone of the illithids, stunning them, illithids are difficult creatures to encounter, despite their limited physical prowess. They can levitate at will and detect the thoughts of nearby creatures, making them very difficult to sneak up on. They can use dominate or charm to avoid being attacked, and some reports state that they can control others by the power of suggestion. Once a mind flare has stunned its prey, it drags them away to feed by wrapping its tentacles around the creature's head and then sucks out their brains, resulting in instant death for creatures with only one head. Creatures like Etins might stand a small chance of escape, but it would still be unlikely. For more on Etins, listen to episode 7. Some illithids even dedicate themselves to honing their psionic abilities even further. Known as illithid scions, their powers are even more terrifying and deadly. They have abilities akin to telekinesis and similar to Mage Hand. They can also use Charm Person, Command, Fear, Crown of Madness, Confusion and more, and can even access divination type abilities similar to True Strike, Sea Invisibility, Scrying and more. They feed on brains to sustain them due to a physiology that requires hormones, enzymes and psychic energy which only brain tissue can provide for them needing to consume one intelligent brain per month in order to stay healthy. Illithids have no gender, but once or t- sometimes twice during their lives they lay a clutch of eggs which hatch tadpoles. These tadpoles are kept in the elder brain tank, being fed brains by caretakers. Those that survive to maturity go through a ceremony known as ceramorphosis, where each tadpole is implanted into a humanoid. Entering via the eye, the tadpole burrows into the creature and devours its brain. The tadpole then takes the place of the creature's brain and transforms it into another mind flayer. Sometimes a tadpole would transform into a more powerful form of illithid, called a euithrid. These euithrids are stronger and larger than a normal illithid and have six face tentacles instead of the usual four. Normally, the appearance of a euithrid causes a burst of growth in both the colony's size and abilities, but eventually, the euithrids break off from the colony with a handful of illithid followers to form their own, where the euithrid becomes a new elder brain. Over the centuries, illithids performed many experiments on which humanoid races were amenable to producing new illithids, and implanted tadpoles into many different types, including beholders, which produces a mind witness, and even dragons, which creates a brain-stealer dragon. They also create servant creatures through various means, including bombarding rats with psionic energy to produce cranium rats that can form intelligent swarms, or brain golems, which are humanoid but made entirely from brain matter. Other illithid-created monsters include mindworms, nerve swimmers, and of course, intellect devourers. Mindflare colonies operate as a hive mind with an elder brain centralising control over a radius of five miles, sending information and commands out from its tiny briny tank and acting as a repository for the collected knowledge of the colony. Colonies are usually between 200 to 2,000 members and each illithid has at least two slaves to do its bidding, normally grimlocks, ogres, troglodytes or quagoths, which are not considered to be edible and so serve as slaves instead.
The upcoming game Baldur's Gate 3 features Mind Flayers heavily in its story, and the opening cinematic is well worth a watch. Look out for Ceramorphosis ceremonies of implanting tadpoles, as well as their plane-shifting nautiloid ships. Also worth a watch are the gameplay videos, which feature combat with intellect devourers. Links are in the show notes. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks very much for listening. I want to just give a quick apology if you've heard some background noise like cars going past or airplanes. I'm not sure how how audible they'll be. But unfortunately at the moment it's really hot in the UK and recording with the door closed just isn't an option. If you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at icastpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram as at icastpod. I create all the content you see on the show and hear on the show and social media, except for some of the sound effects which come from Sirenscape, because great games require great sounds. Check the show notes for the link. If you'd like to help support the show, there are ways to do that. Firstly, subscribe to the show. Secondly, leave us a review on iTunes if you're a user. Reviews there really help the show get heard by new fans. Also, lastly, just a little bit of uh, iCast Pod news. Episode 12, which is due out two weeks from today, is going to be the last episode in season one. Originally, I wasn't going to do it in seasons, but to be perfectly honest with you, I'd like a short break. So season one will come to an end after episode 12, and there'll be a short break, and then we'll come back with season two. If you have any recommendations for what you'd like me to cover in season two, or ideas for parts of the show that I haven't done that you'd like to see, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, my friends, may Timora bless your endeavours. <laughs>